about Brad Heckman, as can't be said also about social media. Welcome to the show. This is episode three of Ear Bud You. Now, I love people who operate irreverently in whatever space it is that they have chosen to operate. Brad Heckman is one of those guys. He's an entrepreneur and does so many other things that it's amazing that no private company has picked him up yet. He tries to get the word out about mediation and mediation best practices in the New York City area. Now, this involves navigating the political, cultural, and social centrifugal force that is New York City, and he does it quite well. There are lines everywhere in our lives. Lines mark boundaries. They delineate places to go and places not to go. They act as invisible fences. It's said that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. We all learned that in eighth grade geometry class. But for some folks who see lines as boundaries that separate rather than as a collection of points that join us, guys like Brad exist and work at a consequential level in the real world to eliminate those lines. And he's building an independent practice, trying to pay the rent, and is trying to get paid in a timely fashion. As you listen to the podcast interview, you'll notice some long pauses. Now, Brad and I were having some trouble getting together on some of the questions, but when we did finally unite, the answers were really great. Now, on to the usual housekeeping. You can connect with the Earbud U on Twitter, um, at Earbud U. You can also check us out on our Instagram page, um, Earbud U, you know, all smacked together, all one word. We tweet and post images on both of those social platforms with the hashtag be part of the show, which you should know by now. Part of our parent company, Human Services Consulting and Training out of Endicott, New York. So check out the HSCT website at www.hsconsultingandtraining.com. As for Brad Heckman, well, check him out at newyorkpeace.org and his blog, theheckless.wordpress.com. He's on Twitter at Hexine and at NYPeace. Finally, if you need mediations done right and you need them done by seasoned professionals, check out the New York State Dispute Resolution Association online at nysdra.org. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Earbud U, episode number three. Get your knowledge on through your earbuds. Our special guest for our third podcast episode is Brad Heckman, blogger, CEO of the New York Peace Institute, noted speaker, uh, mediation trainer, NYU adjunct professor, social media monster, um, and exposed in many other areas. <laughs> um, we know Brad personally from the work that he does at the New York Peace Institute. We're also a rabid follower of his on Twitter, um, as well as other social media networks through which he pumps his delicious and invigorating content. Brad, uh, Brad has spoken at, uh, at TEDx and has done a, done a TED Talk, um, which had awesome pictures of cows attached to it, which we really, really enjoyed because we're very graphical over here at Earbud U. We also um, appreciate the fact that um, Brad has been intimately involved with the New York State Dispute Resolution Association and was responsible for, uh, for getting us, you know, um, into uh, into that organization and getting us uh, getting us presenting um, there uh, last a couple of years ago now actually not last year a couple of years ago now so um, welcome to Earbud you Brad it's a pleasure to be here Hassan thank you so much excellent so let's start off with uh, with our first question um, for our listeners um, what exactly is it that you do on a regular basis like what does your day to day look like. Uh, my day-to-day, well, I, uh, so I'm the CEO of New York Peace Institute, and, and 
which I absolutely love. Um, much of that is being an administrator and a bureaucrat and looking at spreadsheets and dealing with wonderful people. And I also uh, get to train and teach, which I absolutely love. Uh, very often, I'm teaching at NYU in the evenings. So, uh, so being an adjunct professor is my, my side hustle to my day job. And uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm, um, as you uh, beautifully uh, said, I'm lecturing or presenting or trying to get the word out on, on New York Peace Institute and on mediation in general. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it sounds as though you're you're very very active, um, and you're very you're keeping yourself very very busy over there, or I should say, not over there, down there in New York City. What's that like to sort of build a mediation practice um, in the middle of you know the cultural, social, and in some case, some people would say the political capital, you know, of uh, of the United States. What's that like to be? And I know this is a loaded term at ground zero. Yeah, so so to speak, uh, it's a. It's a great question, and it's, it's, it's hard to know where to start. Um, it reminds me of a, a journalist, a uh, Chilean journalist, who was asked, uh, what's it like to live in such a long and skinny country? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, New York is, is a great place to, to practice uh, conflict resolution because we are we're forced to live together. Um, for those of your viewers who have been to New York City, we live in very small apartments, uh, often separated by a mere quarter, uh, three quarters inch of, of drywall, and somehow for the most part we get along, and we're a real mishmash and a mosaic of different languages and cultures and backgrounds and, and orientations. And you know, it's for me, New York City is just a great, great statement of humanity in that it shows that people can live together and work together and get along. And uh, nevertheless, sometimes we we don't. So to be able to be a little piece of being the the glue that binds us together in New York City is it's really an honor and. It's a great place to learn and to be curious and be a, a, a student of human nature. And it's interesting that you bring you bring you bring up that that fact about being curious and you know that quarter inch of uh, the quarter inch of drywall, um, because you know a person who comes from the Midwest like myself, um, it does have some East Coast background, but comes from the Midwest. You know, I've had many conversations with folks in the Midwest about you know being from you know as they put it back east and. Uh, you know, they always say, hey, look, you know, we don't know what's going on out there. And, uh, you know, you all don't know what's going on here. And I think we we also had a conversation about that at the first NYSRA, um, you know, co- conference that I uh, that I attended, um, sort of about the sort of center of the world sometimes attitude that maybe some New Yorkers take yeah. um, sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, now, you, you started, like you said, you're, you're the CEO of New York Peace Institute. Um, you're really passionate about, you know, really being engaged with um, with peacemaking. Um I'm going to ask you a key question here very early on in our conversation, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this, because I'm fascinated by the process of building a business, um, and I'm fascinated by what that takes at a real consequential level. Like right now, I'm kind of walking through, um, I don't know if you ever heard of the um, the entrepreneur and author, but uh, Steve Blank, um, I'm kind of walking through you know, his how to do a startup process you know, right now, and I, I wonder, and it's what a source of frustration for me in the field, why more mediators don't don't go through those types of processes, you know, in order to build an independent practice, uh, why so many of them dump into CDRCs or whatever the system is of the state they happen to be in, um, and then are frustrated when they don't make any money from their mediation or they don't make any money from doing that, that peacemaking work that is very valuable work and I believe personally and philosophically does need to be paid for. Um, talk to me about how you, how you, 
you know, navigate both of those differing, um, differing ideas, you know, the, I, I guess some some people will say, and I guess a crude sense, the capitalism <laughs> and the uh, and the peacemaking. Like, how do you navigate both of those things? Yeah, that's that's such a great question. Um, you know, when I uh, was in college and trying to figure out what to do with my life, um, I said to myself, you know, no matter what, um, I want a career in social justice, and I don't want to have to do marketing or manage budgets or manage people or build a business or any of that stuff, only to find out that that's exactly what I spend much of my time doing in, in building a nonprofit organization. And this is something that I tell my students um, all the time in, in a class that I teach at NYU called How to Build Your Own Nonprofit, which is... Um, you know, first of all, you need to be passionate about whatever it is you believe in, whether it's a for-profit or non-profit organization. And you also have to realize that the vast majority of your time is not going to be dedicated to the, the, the content that you are passionate about. It's going to be around building a business and doing all of those things that I was so against doing early on that I actually, I actually really enjoy doing. Um, because I, I really deeply believe in 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 building peace and in the organization that I'm building to um, to pursue that vision. Um, so I think once you orient yourself to see that you know getting the word out, whether it's on social media or or traditional media, or monetizing the work that you do, if it's something you deeply believe in, it's it's all part of it and it feels good. So even even the mu- the most mundane task that we have to do is really part of putting that puzzle together. Uh, so. Um, you know, so, so entrepreneurship was something that came to me a little bit late in life and it's something that I've, I've really learned to embrace and, and have fun with. Yeah. And I'm a big proponent of the idea that entrepreneurship breeds freedom. Um, and particularly for people and I'm 34. So for people who are, you know, my age and younger, um, I don't think we have, and I, I cock and crow about this and I, I say this in every single presentation, if you get me talking about entrepreneurship that I possibly can. Um, but we don't. My generation and the generations behind me aren't going to have those social safety nets, um, and we're not going to have those those um, those very needed at the time, you know, government-backed promises like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. We're not going to have those. Um, instead, we're going to have whatever it is that we built, and the tools to do that um, are just laying around right now. I, I watched a, a YouTube video of. Uh, uh, the LinkedIn CEO talking about where LinkedIn wants to go inside of 10 years. And it's just fascinating how absolutely driven towards developing professional connections and networks and really circumventing that sales funnel so that every single sale in 10 years will go through LinkedIn. <laughs> you know, that's, and that's an amazing vision from, from someone who started out as for for a social media platform that started out just as you know the business version of Facebook you know and so um i i am passionate about entrepreneurship because like i said i think that brings that breeds freedom um talk to me about the nuts and bolts of that how do you you, you said you know you don't want to sit in marketing meetings and you know but but you're on twitter like i see you on twitter all the time and you're a very witty twitterer so like how do you how do you, how do you navigate both of those things um, you know, I, it all feels kind of seamless to me now. I mean, it's uh, first of all, it's fun, and 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 you know, I I, uh, I manage two Twitter accounts. One is my personal Twitter account, Hexine, which is it's just bad jokes and obnoxious puns, as as, as you well know. And and my professional one, New York Peace Institute, um, you know, which I also want to be fun and engaging and and witty. And and I think one thing I've I've learned is is though though I I, I take my work and our mission at, at the Peace Institute very seriously, 
Um, I don't take myself terribly seriously, and we as an organization really believe in injecting levity and humor in it. So, so the, the, the marketing and the outreach that we do, you know, we try to avoid a, a, a hard sell pitch, but really just uh, have fun with it and, and engage with people. So I, I consider the social media and the marketing that we do as, just, as, as really part of having a conversation. Um, and online, that's, you know, it's our, our virtual uh, storefronts, and, you know, we try to be the, the friendly clerks and cashiers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, okay, let's switch a little bit to your background. Um, you know, a little, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, what was it like to, you know, to work and live in Poland in the late 80s and the early 90s during that period of time when, you know, communism was ending and a new social order was beginning, um, kind of similar to some historical events that have happened recently in that part of the world. What, what was that like then? I've, I've, never, I've never had the opportunity to kind of talk to somebody who was kind of there at that ground zero moment. So talk to me a little bit about, about why you were there and what that was like. Well, sure. I, you know, I graduated from, from college in, in 1989, and it was the, the, the tail end of the, the Cold War and the, um, uh, the part of the perestroika era, uh, where the Soviet Union was opening up, and I just I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Although I saw things were changing in that part of the world, and and I I pretended to be an English teacher, and through a connection, got a job teaching English at a university um, in in central Poland. And as just as luck would have it, the the revolutions broke out, and the Berlin Wall fell, and societies were changing. And actually, you know, what we were talking about before about trying to reconcile these paths of, of social justice and entrepreneurship. I, I, I really saw that there and it was it was fascinating because before that my my politics and belief system had really been um, in the stick it to the man kind of domain. And I, didn't, I don't know that I thought beyond that. And in, and in Poland I, I I saw what was really a mass movement that very w- much was stick it to the man or stick it to the Kremlin. Um, and, and my assumptions that were that behind that would be this kind of uh, archetypal um, left wing view of the world that we often saw in protest movements here. Um, yet the first thing people wanted to, to do after overthrowing the regime peacefully uh, was become entrepreneurs and capitalists, and so that was well, yeah. the time. Get something to eat, <laughs> you know. Uh, and you know, and and that had a, a, a real kind of a a, a mixed. Uh, it was a real mixed bag in terms of what it brought on in society, but it was just it, it was just fascinating, and 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 seeing um, a lot of amazing things happen. You know, seeing seeing people who were political prisoners and factory workers and avant-garde playwrights become presidents of their of their countries was was just truly remarkable and um, also accompanied by diminishing social safety nets and uh, minority um, rights in jeopardy these were countries that were rife with conflict so seeing this this paradox of of the people's voice peacefully um, overthrowing regimes through through roundtable dialogue, but at the same time seeing a lot of tensions bubble to the surface made it just a an amazing laboratory for for democracy and a great place to to learn about conflict resolution and and so so that for me was really my introduction to the field that I'm I'm in now and it was it, it was yeah it was an incredible experience and 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 hard to believe it was uh, 25 years ago. Well, I've often said, uh, you know, we have um, we have three generations of people in the workplace now. We've got, you know, the millennials. We've got uh, 
um, you know, the baby boomers um, who are in uh, senior management positions and things like that. And then we've got uh, we've got the Gen Xers who no one talks about. You know, like my oldest sister is is in her mid forties. You know, she's she's right there. She graduated, I think, in nineteen. I think she graduated in eighty nine from from uh, from high school or something like that. You know, so, so she's you know she's right in there with you. Um, and I've often said, you know. The Gen Xers, they're the ones that are going to save us all <laughs> as a generation because you know what? I mean, you, you did the wars with the baby boomers. You know, you went over and you said, hey, you know, we want these things. Give them to us. And you had those wars so that the people who were caught in between, like myself, and then the millennials, like my youngest sister, who's 26, could actually get, you know, all that social justice, you know, benefits that you're talking about. And you just, you just gave it to us. You just said, oh, you want family medical leave? Oh, here you go. <laughs> you know, you want paid time off? Here you go, you know. <laughs> um, but now you've got, you know, you've got the millennials who, and I, I want to get back to this concept of social justice that you've got. Um, do you notice when you have long, younger mediators coming in that you know they're very passionate about the social justice, or are they kind of, are they kind of the way they are on Twitter, like you know, hey, I'm just sort of hanging out here, and hey, what did Justin Bieber do? <laughs> oh, those kids. Well, well, first of all, you're welcome for all the things that Generation <laughs> X uh, brought. Thank you. And before I the question, it's funny. I, I I just gave a presentation in in Texas for the Texas Association of Mediators. And they had a panel that was meant to be representative of the different generations. So traditionalist, uh, uh, baby boomers, millennials, and they couldn't find a generation Xer to actually be on the panel. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, so what you're saying rings true. We are a little bit of an invisible and transitional generation. Um, so, so and for me, in terms of the millennials that I see, and, and most of my students are millennials, I, I, I think they're just, they're just remarkable. Um, and, you know, I, I went to a presentation a while back that, that, that talked about how millennials, because, you know, they're so um, defined by social media that they, they lack um, empathy skills, you know, because they don't have as much face-to-face interaction as they do um, online uh, presences. And I, I, I couldn't disagree more. I mean, I, I find that the students I work with are just they're just brilliant. I mean, they have great senses of self. They are they're excellent communicators and um, and are able to, to speak truth to power in a really fascinating way. I mean, they they will fact check you right there on their whatever device they have within a moment. So they they're able to call BS, but they have great communication skills with which to do it. So I I have learned. Um, so much, including everything that I attempt to do on social media, I, you know, I owe it to the generation uh, Y folks. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's very rare for one generation to say, oh, yeah, the kids coming up today are, are so much smarter than us. You know, it's usually the opposite. And I, I actually am I'm rather in awe of, uh, of the millennials. Yeah, I can tell you. Being located in um, in upstate New York, you know the struggles that I have are not necessarily with the millennials, and there's there's very few here. But not those are not necessarily the struggles that I have. The struggles that I have are with the entrenched, you know, boomer generation, um, really really struggling with, you know, kind of hey, how much power do we give up? Can we give up power? Can we share power? What's this collaboration thing? You know, <laughs> and again, you got to understand, you know, they came out of they came out of the experience of, and I'm I'm doing a presentation. Um, I'm presenting a paper at an interdisciplinary conference um, coming up here pretty soon um, around um, online reputation management and neurobiology and a couple of other things all mixed together. Um, and so 
one of the things that I know I have noted in my paper is that uh, you know baby boomers, you know, we marched in the '60s and we gave in the '90s, and we're comfortable. We're going to com- be comfortable keeping giving, you know. Whereas millennials are like, hey, how can I get involved with the Acumen Fund? You know, can I go to 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 you know a country in Africa, or can I go to Southeast Asia, or can I even go around the corner and teach some kid to read? You know, can I go do that? Um, versus or how can I collaborate with them versus, hey, you know what, I got to get mine. I don't have to collaborate, <laughs> you know. Um, so that's that's very interesting to me, seeing that generational breakdown and those, those shifts kind of happening um, in our social culture. And I'm, I'm fascinated by all that because of the conflict that it brings. Now, um, talk to me about, you know, some of your mediation mentors. Who were those people that really said, you know, took you under their wing and said, hey, Brad, you know, you've got the skills. I believe in you. You can go out and do this. Who are the people that said, you know, you're the you're the man. Keep going. Um, well, they they happen to be baby boomers, so uh, so I so so props to them. Uh, there there were so many. That, you know, they were mainly um, people that I worked with when I was doing work in in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union during this this great time of transition. And one in particular, a, a gentleman named Dusan Ondrushek, who um, who is a director of the center in Slovakia that I worked with, and he's still doing amazing work. And, you know, this is a, a group of people that approached mediation from a di- very different way. So here in the States, it's not unusual for mediators to come from a legal background or a social work background. And I'm very proud that at, at New York Peace Institute, we have a, a real uh, smorgasbord of, of professions in our in, in our 400-person mediator pool. In, in the regions that I was working in, since the idea of community mediation was something fairly new, um, they kind of reinvented it and made it their own and mediators often came from creative backgrounds or they were former political dissidents or just kind of offbeat characters so which really resonated with me so I you know I felt I was learning mediation together with people who um, may have been recently introduced to mediation but had had just tremendous life experience in transforming their societies. Um, so there's kind of that group of people who influenced me. And then um, someone who I, I consider to be a mentor is a, a gentleman named Raymond Schoenholz who, was, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, um, sadly, um, who was the founder of Partners for Democratic Change, the organization that I, that I worked for when I was doing international work. And he was also uh, the founder of, of of one of the first community mediation centers here in the states, community boards, which is based in in San Francisco, and he was, I would say, a real social entrepreneur. So one of these people who you know did help me reconcile these worlds of social justice and, and entrepreneurship, and just you know a, a a force of nature, someone who who believed so deeply in mediation and negotiation that when we would travel together, Ray would go into hotels with. No intention of, of ever staying in the hotel, but he just wanted to negotiate room rates with the concierge. You know, <laughs> hardwired to, to negotiate and and proselytize about mediation, and is responsible for really, you know, being kind of the typhoid Mary of, of mediation in the the Balkans and Eastern Europe and, Bal- and the Baltics and, and South Caucasus. And I, you know, I, I'm surrounded by plenty of of, of mentors um, here, including my peers yeah, here at the Peace Institute. 
Excellent. 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 Well, you know, you, you can you can get mentors, you know, from up the from up the ladder and for, and obviously, you know, from down the ladder, you know, people that people that you admire in both ends. So, excellent. Well, that's the mediation mentor piece is always something that um that I struggle with um and I think you find mentors obviously maybe in a graduate program or at a CDRC or something like that. Um I always personally struggle with, you know, who's a mentor that I'm going to find and then who how am I going to going to navigate that mentorship relationship because it's give and take you know it's not just I go there and I suck you dry from all the experience you had and then I run away you know it's it's what am I going to give you um and and how am I going to give that to you and so what I've done here um, in my practice is I've taken on you know how can I help uh, how can I help other people who are behind me who aren't doing what I'm doing right now but want to you know how can I sit down and have those conversations with them um, on a regular basis so now just jumping out I just want to point yeah. your viewers that that while you may see me I, I am actually staring into a still photo of Hassan um, ripping his shirt open in a Superman like heroic pose so I'm actually making eye contact and engaging with with this beautiful statue um, so. Um, yeah, I think your audience should know that. So, uh, so I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Thank you for pointing out. Yeah, I do love, I do love the, I do love the logo. Um, you know, it's very, it is very heroic. Well, it comes from my, you know, my, my comic book background. I, I love comics. I love that idea of, uh, you know, good vanquishing evil. Um, but then there being a little bit of ambiguity at the end of the day, you know, my, my favorite, uh, my favorite character for many, many years on the comic book side has been Batman just cause, you know, Batman is a guy who, who, you know, not about conflict resolution. He, well, he is, but, you know, he's about, you know, resolving it with his fists. <laughs> um, but one of the happiest days that I've ever had is when um, the Batman followed me on Twitter. So Batman follows me around, so that's kind of awesome. Really? Wow. <laughs> kind, of, kind of makes my, – now my life is complete. The circle has been, uh, the circle has been closed. Excellent. Well done, sir. Thank you. Well, do you um do you ever have you know and, and I always I ask all my all my guests this question um it's a standard question and um I love the movie High Fidelity with John Cusack I don't know if you've ever seen it <laughs> but yeah there's so many little 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 moments in that film and, and being a film guy um and being a, a cinematic guy um that film kind of brought together everything for me, you know, the, the creative piece and then the film, the thematic piece, and then the just how am I going to be a good human being piece um, all together. And I think the script was really, really excellently written. But John Cusack plays, you know, record store owner for the benefit of those who haven't, who haven't seen the movie. So he plays a record store owner who um, owns a, you know, a, kind of one of those old school neighborhood record shops that existed before MP3 players and, you know, even before CDs. And, uh, you know, he employs Jack Black. Um, and Jack Black is in his great role before he was overexposed and kind of being doing ridiculous stuff, I, I think, anyway. Um, but uh, John Cusack has this moment of personal kind of just nonsense going on, you know, with his ex-girlfriend, and then there's a new person, and his record store isn't working, and then, you know, his ex-girlfriend's father dies. It's just a whole thing, right? And uh, he has a moment of frustration where he just, he says, you know, I just want to pack it in and go work at a coconut. It's <laughs> just like the worst thing ever for a guy like that to go work at a chain record store. So, you know, Brad, do you ever have a moment, did you ever have a moment of frustration in your career where you just came into the office maybe after work at a really hard mediation or a negotiation where the two parties just wouldn't move and you just threw everything down and you're like, you know, I could go work as an admin assistant somewhere, <laughs> you know? Well, actually, let me, uh, let me first ask you a trivia question about High Fidelity. Um, do you remember the name of Jack Black's band in that movie? 
Oh, it was um, Sonic Death Monkey. <laughs> that was one. The, the, the one I'm thinking was Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Kathleen Turner Overdrive, yes. Well, that's what they changed it to. So, you know, yes, at the end, yeah. <laughs> at the record release party. A song, I believe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I, I've had moments like that. And, and you're, you're reminding me of my, my father, who, who passed away about, uh, about eight years ago. And he was, he was a third grade teacher in a, a blue-collar town in Pennsylvania, where I'm from. Taught third grade for like 30 years and retired early for, for health reasons. And... Then after that, spent the last 10 years of his life working in a factory doing, doing menial labor, and he absolutely loved it. He loved teaching, and it was an amazing teacher and a huge, huge influence on me. Um, you know, but 30 years of, of working with, uh, with eight-year-old kids and, and not being able to take a bathroom break and just being so, so dedicated to it wore on him, and he just kind of loved the zen of, of working in a factory and being accountable, you know, largely to himself. And 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 I and I do get that, and and you know, more often than not, I just feel so energized by the work that I do. But I've done, you know, plenty of of jobs, working from ranging room selling furniture to working in a warehouse to working in various malls, um, where I often felt that because I just didn't know what was uh, what was coming next. Um, and I I, re- I remember I, I had a job in Washington D.C. where. Um, it was an internship, actually. My job was was to to bring a, a group of, of mayors from Romania. So these were the first uh, democratically elected Romanian mayors to the United States, and I had to to squire them around to different cities. And they would they were here on a U.S. State Department study tour, and the idea was to show them things in America that they could take back uh, to their new democracy and and apply to their villages, and. And I didn't have any control over the actual agenda. And I, I remember I had to take them to um, to the Twin Cities, so Minneapolis, St. Paul, and yes. yeah, and and take them to see the Mall of America, um, which I, I imagine you may have been to as as a Midwesterner. Have you been to the Mall of America? I've I've been. I have a record of being in and out of the Mall of America at twenty minutes flat. Wow, that that that's remarkable. Uh, it is it is a record. It will never be broken. <laughs> I challenge anybody out there listening to this podcast right now, email me, tweet at me. I'll, I'll give you my secrets. But in and out in 20 minutes, I, I figured it out. Excellent. Well, I, I was there for you know probably two hours. That it felt like a week. And, and you know the, the the reason I was there was to to show the, there were these Romanian mayors from small towns and cities and villages. An example of a public-private partnership, and when they saw this, just you know, glittering gem of capitalist, uh, you know, overkill, it, it was, you know, it just struck me as this is, you know, this is lunacy. This is probably the most non-transferable thing they're they're gonna they're gonna see, and and then trying to keep them together as a group when they're seeing all these you know bright and shiny stores and you know looking to find, you know, presents and tchotchkes for their friends back home. It was, yeah, I, 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 and I lost one of them. I lost a Romanian there in, in the Mall of America. So at that point, yes, so working at a, at a coconut, um, possibly within the Mall of America that I couldn't find. Right, yeah. Would have, would have been a good option for me. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you can't lose a Romanian in the Mall of America. You just, you can't, you can't, you can't go out there down one Romanian. You can't leave. You'd be surprised how easy it is to lose a Romanian in the Mall of America. Yes. <laughs> Email me for your secrets on how to do that. 
Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll talk later. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk later. I'll, I'll, I'll get you through that whole Romanian thing. It'll never happen to me again. <laughs> well, um, okay, well, I mean, yeah, switching back to Eastern Europe, let's talk about, um, let's talk about um, your work with, um, with the Roma peoples and kind of where, where that came from and, um, and what, that's look, what that looked like and kind of what was your inspiration, um, what was your inspiration for that? Well, so, so first of all, the Roma, for, for those who don't know, are, are more commonly known as, as gypsies. Uh, although the word gypsy is, is considered an ethnic slur, to, to, to gyp someone comes from the word gypsy. And the gypsies are an ethnic minority that migrated from India more than a thousand years ago and, and lived a nomadic lifestyle for, for much of their time. And then under communism in Eastern Europe, they were kind of forced to, to settle and after the fall of the Berlin Wall, they were really the first to, to lose their social safety nets. So, so it's a group of people that have a, a certain uh, cultural identity and 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 suffer um, all kinds of oppression. To even in this day, I, I you know I, I imagine it to be similar to to what uh, the the Deep South was in this country under under Jim Crow. So, mm-hmm. you know, so for example, I, I really wasn't able to go to restaurants or cafes with my Roma friends in some neighborhoods because of the discrimination, because they looked differently and they dressed differently and they were very often a rather um, insular culture. And, you know, I didn't know, I, 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 I can't say that I know what inspired me to work with them because you know, I grew up with a with a grandmother from from Eastern Europe, and you know, was regaled with stories about how the Roma would steal children and would roll into town and like vandals and you know and and steal from people and all of these things, all the kinds of things that you hear about pretty much any oppressed minority group. Yep. yep. And in in coming to work with Roma and, and know them a, a little bit, I, I was just inspired and amazed at how. You know, these folks who have been brutalized and, and segregated and oppressed maintained their their dignity and their integrity. And, you know, to some small degree, I think perhaps I was accepted and, you know, by, by some of them. But, you know, it's just a classic underdog story of people, um, you know, getting by under really difficult situations. And and so, you know, the ability to be to be part of a program as I was that was designed to really promote um, not the assimilation of the Roma, but the inclusion and integration of them so that they have a voice in, in society was well, just a huge honor. And they were just a, a, a really fun group of, of people to, to work with. Yeah, now talk about that, that difference between assimilation and, you know, um, integration. You know, I mean, we, we have so many arguments in the United States um, because we're a nation of immigrants. I mean, I, I, I look at our founding, you know, <laughs> Ain't nobody here who's from here. Let's say that <laughs> you know that's that that's what I get back to. No, not nobody. Um, so how do we? How do you preserve dignity between you know integration and assimilation? You know, African Americans have been struggling with that for literally since we were we were pushed off of boats here. You know, um, but how do you how do you navigate that with a population that um, has gone from being um, from being a migratory population that was allowed to move around freely to being, in essence, told, hey, you will be here and we'll give you some goodies here and make sure you stay. And then that whole entire system goes away and now you're free to roam, but roam to where, you know, and, and roam to what? How do you how do you navigate that assimilation and that integration piece 
um, or do you? Yeah, it's you know, I mean, for me, it's really all about the self determination of people and what what they want to be. So if mm-hmm. you know, if if they want to, anyone wants to be part of the dominant culture or have a voice, that you know, you, you should have the pathways and the ability to to do that. If you want to maintain your language and your culture. Um, and your customs, uh, that's great. You should have the pathways and the rights to, to be able to, um, to do just that. And, you know, the idea of assimilation was, was very much what my own family, um, most of whom were, were immigrants, my grandparents, that was an ethos that America was, was a melting pot. And, you know, we, we lose our customs and our traditions and we become, you know, whatever middle class Americans are, are supposed to be. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up with grandparents that spoke uh, five or six, la- six languages among them, and my parents learned none. And that's, that's assimilation, and I think we lost a lot in that, in that transition. Um, so, you know, uh, um, the, rather than seeing the, the world or the United States or any country as a melting pot, I think, you know, looking at it as a, a, a tossed salad is, is really a, a better way where we can all be together in the same bowl, but still maintain our individual flavors that collectively make a, you know, make a tasty dish. So yep, yep. Um, I, I think that's, so that's, uh, as a tortured analogy, that's, that's <laughs> of, of looking at, and it's actually making me quite hungry for a salad. For a salad right now, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think as, I think as we become more of a globalized culture also, Brad, the, the ways in which that salad gets tossed around are going to change and this is why I'm so passionate about social media because it's that ultimate it's an ultimate expression of that democratic space I think you know where um, yeah you know you're going to have the people who are going to come into the commons and they're going to wreck it but you're also going to have those people who are going to come into the commons and are going to want to preserve it and then you're going to have the vast majority of people who are going to come into the commons and are going to look around and be like I don't know you know I, I just you know I want to I don't know what I want to do, but I'm just going to hang out here for a little bit and see kind of what's going on. Um, and and my struggle, or not my struggle, but the focus of my business, and yeah, my struggle is how do you balance all three of those perspectives? Because I think all three of them are equally, I would say equally valid, maybe not equally great, but equally valid. You know, a person who's going to come in and trash the comments clearly from their perspective thinks that they're doing something that's going to benefit them, and they're coming at it from that selfish, that selfish point of view. Um, but so is the person who comes in saying from that other extreme and says, I want to preserve it you know, in its pristine glory. And again, this is the tortured analogy, but I'm relating it to social media. I'm going to preserve social media in its pristine glory, and it's never, Facebook will never change. <laughs> you know? um, but as in a globalized culture, you can't have that. You've know, you got you to gotta have that tossed salad. You've got to have everybody coming in, mixing it up, um, which is why, you know, mashups and memes work so well on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, where – okay, we, we've talked a lot about a, heavy, a lot of heavy stuff. We talked about, you know, working with, with Roma peoples, and we've talked about, you know, your experiences in Eastern Europe. Um, we've talked about John Cusack and High Fidelity. What do you do <laughs> – so let's get to the fun part. What do you do for fun? What do you do to shake the cobwebs off? You know, what do you do when you're not – you know, tweeting or, you know, solving the problems of the world or working in Eastern Europe or going down to Texas um, so that they have a Gen Xer to show up on a panel somewhere? Like, what, what do you do for fun? Um, well, I, you know, um, it, it's funny because the, the, the discussion of, of work-life balance comes up frequently among very, very driven people. And, you know, and, and for me, um, my work really is fun, and I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate in that I'm able to, to bring some of my, my, my creative pursuits um, into my works. So you mentioned that I like to draw 
pictures, and I there's, there's pictures of cows in my TED talk. So I, I like I'm not an artist, but I like to draw ridiculous and silly pictures. So when I train and teach, I hang and show ridiculous and absurd cartoons that I draw. So drawing and sketching and painting, those are things that I like. And you know, I, since I get to integrate that into my work, like I. You know, I'm like, wow, I'm I'm like sitting at home coloring, and that kind of counts at, at, as work. So I feel I've kind of pulled a fast one. But oh, that, go. you know, um, uh, it's funny. I, you know, I'm 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 very fortunate to live in in New York City. Um, I don't do nearly enough of the things that New York City has to offer. So it's as much about the possibility of doing those things as actually doing those things. So. You know, I'm I'm I think we're in the golden age of TV, so there's a lot of great great shows that I watch, and I get to watch them from a conflict resolution perspective and use clips from those shows and in my training and teaching, which is which is just 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 great. Um, yeah. yeah. Have, you, have you? What are your favorite shows right now? What do you watch? What do you got streaming in your Netflix queue right now? What do you got there? Um, right now, let's see. I, I like The Walking Dead. I think is a great show. You know, The Mad, Mad Men, though it seems to come out like every two years. You know, is is, is great. Most of the HBO shows and Showtime shows I, I really enjoy. Um, House of Cards is great. Uh, although you know Kevin Spacey is just like just you know he, he that guy. Just just evil. <laughs> he he chews the scenery in that show, and then he, he spits it out into little Kevin Spacey, who so then goes to their own scenery. It's just this you know perpetual motion machine of Kevin Spacey's uh, chewing. Uh, so um, yeah, so they're you know, like really really good stuff on TV. And I was a guy who you know twenty years ago was one of those people who was oh I don't I don't watch the TV. I prefer the theater right. and. and I don't watch the TV. <laughs> a whole world in there that's just just amazing, good stuff. Well, you are right. You, we do live in the golden age of TV. I um I, I absolutely believe that. As some of those shows you mentioned, I mean, I I love as well. I I got off the train with The Walking Dead after the second season. I just I got off the train because there wasn't enough killing of zombies and there was too much of this. <laughs> we got to preserve our humanity nonsense, which I thought you know in the context of the show, I'm like why. What are we What are we doing here? <laughs> you know. Um, By the way, you uh, be the only person I met who says there's not enough killing of zombies on The Walking Dead. <laughs> there's There's a lot of killing of zombies on The Walking Dead. I got to tell you. you have to, to well, I think I, I think the body count went up after I stopped watching. <laughs> so we got to kill some more zombies in this show, right? Exactly. Well, and I I love The Walking Dead. I read a review of the show the other day. And uh, the the writer who wrote the review, I think, was in the Atlantic, or, or it might have been the New York Times. It was some highfalutin magazine. Um, they were talking about, and their critique of it was that, um, you know, why is The Walking Dead so popular? It's never won any Emmys. It's never been nominated for any awards or anything like that. And yet, it busts the ratings every single Sunday that it's on. It's a huge national event in a time when audiences are segmented. You talk about marketing. Audiences are segmented across multiple screens. You can't get... We're not, we're not all having the same sort of experience with the same sort of culture anymore the way we were maybe when you were coming up in the 70s and 80s. We're just not having that, that unified culture because we're not all sitting around one screen anymore. But in a world where that is the reality, The Walking Dead still does bang up numbers that even underneath that old system would have been bang up numbers. Um, and what does that say about us as a culture and as a society? And the conclusion that the writer came to is that um, it basically says that he basically – you know, came to the conclusion that um, it's just a phenomenon that we have to live with and it's great and isn't it awesome that we live in the golden age of, of TV, which I agree with him about that, but 
what I think it says is kind of where our brains are at as a culture. We're kind of, I think as an American culture, we're kind of schizophrenic and we're kind of all panicked about, we are, we're all panicked about the end of the world. It didn't happen in, at that dot moment of 2000. And so it's like, what do you do? The, the, the big question of the day is, and I think it'll be the big question for the next probably 10 or 20 years until some of this flattens out. Um, and of course, September 11th happened and a whole lot of other things. But what do you do when the end of the world doesn't come? <laughs> what do you do after that? You know, and that's a that's a hugely existential question that I think The Walking Dead answers. Um, another another show I think answers that is um, The Sopranos really answered that question, you know. Um, also a big favorite show of mine. I sent out an email about this on my email blast recently, Breaking Bad. I love Breaking Bad. Yeah, me too. (laughs) You know? Um, and so, you know, the Walter White, you know, average nebbishy guy turns into this drug cartel, you know, guy and then this drug cartel leader, Heisenberg, because of something that happens to him directly. And how does he respond to that? Again, I think that speaks volumes about where we are as a culture and where we are, as, where we are in conflict as a culture as well. Yeah, and, and I'll say what I like about so many of those shows is, is they, they, you know, they really try to show the, the complexity of the human condition. And, you know, so the, you know, uh, uh, I think back in the 70s, there were great movies where you had these kind of morally ambivalent heroes. So like the Clint Eastwood characters, um, some of the Al Pacino characters, and Godfather and so on. And then after that, you had your heroes and, and, and your villains. And, and we see in mediation that, that people are, are, are far more than how they may present in one particular moment. So when we see people in, in, in conflict, we see, you know, we see anger or, or high emotion or, or, or perhaps even, even trauma. And it's easy to look at that one narrow slice of who they are and then extrapolate and say, well, that's who they are. They're just an angry person. The reality is we're all far more than our, our worst actions and our worst moments in, in, in life. So, you know, it, so any medium that actually captures the, the contradictions and the paradoxes and the complexity of people, I, I really like. And I think it relates really, really directly to, to what you and I are doing in our careers. Absolutely. 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 Well, well, what are some um, what are some some and, I, you know, is, this is a mediation podcast along with everything else, you know, entrepreneurship, social media, all that kind of good stuff. So I got to ask you a, a standard mediation question here. Um, what are some some controversies right now, you know, in the mediation scene that just, you know, really don't drive your boat right now? You look at them and you're like, you know, I've made a decision about that and I've moved on. And I'm not asking you to talk about specific personalities um, or any of that kind of stuff, but just like maybe what are some some raging and there are some things in the, in the mediation field that I don't I don't even look at anymore like should we be transformative or facilitative I'm, I've given up I've thrown up my hands I you know it's not that I don't care about that argument anymore but it doesn't relate kind of to what I do because I use both of those at the same time you know sometimes in in the middle of a conversation you know you talk about thin slicing thin slicing with with two parties in the middle of in the middle of a mediation or um, if I'm having a <clears throat> a one-on-one um, sales conversation which is honestly a form of negotiation. I'm I'm thin slicing that that entire thing, and I'm using transformative. I'm using facilitative. You know, I'm using a typical traditional sales approach. You know, I'm I'm doing all those things at one time, and it's happening literally in my brain in four quadrillionths of a second. So I I can't get involved in that type of uh, that type of argument. So what are some mediation maybe uh, controversies? Maybe a loaded word there. But what are some things on the mediation scene where you're just like, you know what? I'm good, thanks. You know, I, I don't need to. I don't need to comment on that. I, I, I think you mentioned that, you know, one of the main ones for me, which, you know, which is people's 
some people's adherence to orthodoxy, orthodoxy around their around their methodology, and I, you know, I, I think um, for me, um, coming of age in this field with 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 people um, internationally who were able to really meld together uh, a melange of different of different styles and approaches was was so influential that I, you know, um, I. I, I Tend to, to not engage in, in discussions of this model over 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 that model. I think as long as people's self determination is respected in mediation and the core values of mediation are upheld, I think there's a lot of leeway to to be a, a kid in a candy store in terms of the the interventions that that you choose. So that's you know that for me is kind of a a, a stale argument at at, at this point. Um, Having said that, I'm you know I'm really I'm not much of an intellectual, so uh, or or an academic, um, and you know although ironically I you know I, I, I teach at a university, so I, I tend not honestly not to be engaged in or, or really follow some of the you know the the, the intellectual uh, um, discussions about what's happening in the field. I'm just a guy running a community mediation center. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Awesome. Well, you know, let's talk about hypothetical battles. You know, if a if a fair mediation battle were to occur, say between um, you know, Dave Hilton and Cindy Noble, you know, let's go. You know, who who are you going to take in that uh, in that mediation in that mediation rap battle? Who are you taking? So, uh, a, medi- a mediation battle. All right. <laughs> mediation. A mediation rap battle. <laughs> rap battle. Let me right, let me let me try to wrap my head around. Battle even is so. so um, Dave Hilton, all right, big guy from Texas, radio host, Cine Noble, um, conflict coach from Canada. So Canada versus Texas, both mediation professionals. This, this, um, this, this is really a tough one. I, I think you know Texans are really friendly, Canadians are really friendly. So, um, oh man, I, I'd have to say they're 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 gonna hug it out, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a win-win. It's the only it's the only way it can end. It's the only way. There can only be a win-win. There, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I always ask the um, I always ask the hypothetical battle question. That's one of my uh, one of my questions. As my listeners know, um, that I always ask any single one of my guests, no matter what field they're in. I think one of the one of my last guests was on a previous podcast. I asked him about uh, you know Bob Dylan versus Neil Diamond, you know, or something like that, something to that effect. He's a he's a musician, so you know, kind of. Kind of really, really an awesome, an awesome question. Well, um, we've, we're, we're getting ready to we're getting ready to get close to the end here. Um, so I've got a few frivolous questions, um, but you know they're also they're also really interesting and kind of really give some insight into you. Um, first off, I would like to say thank you for for agreeing to come onto onto Earbud U um, and really uh, connecting with uh, with my podcast listeners and connecting with me. Um, and I love you know having the opportunity to talk with you and go kind of go back and forth. All right. Um, so you know, if there was a if there was a, a movie about you, if if someone were to come to you from Hollywood and say, "Congratulations, Brad Heckman. We've been following you around on social media sneakily for the last like four or five years. We've we've put together a composite sketch, and we've we've come up with uh, out of the slush pile. We pulled a script. You know, the scripts that don't get made, we pulled out one, and." Uh, you know, it's a 250-page script, and we want you to be one of the main characters in there. Um, who plays you in that movie? Um, well, well, first of all, yes. If, if there were a movie about me, it would indeed come from a slush pile of scripts. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so um, I don't know. I, um, in terms of, of celebrity comparisons, I get uh, Crispin Glover a lot. So he's the guy who played uh, yes. Michael J. Fox's father on Back to the Future. Um, yes. 
I I get Robin Williams. I get Bono. In fact, I've I've dressed as Bono for Halloween. Um, I don't know that any of those guys would 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 capture me in all of my neurotic glory glory. So. Um, Growing up, uh, Woody Allen was kind of a role model for me, much, much less so nowadays, given what he may or may not have 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 done. Um, but um, I, I don't know. I, you know, any any um, diminutive uh, nerdy actor with a prominent nose, I think, could pretty much do the trick. Well, I I prefer to think of you. Um, I'll think of you as the Heisenberg of mediation. There you go with the with the hat and the whole oh, wow. the whole pork, the pork pie, the pork pie hat. Yeah, you know you're coming in. You're going to make it happen. You know. So, so yeah, that's though. I'm hoping. Well, uh, once again, Brad, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, what would you um, What would you like to promote um, for our listeners um, today? Um, if anything, any upcoming projects or things you got, you know, conferences you're going to be at, traveling you're going to be doing, um, or anything that you have done that you'd like people to hey go back and take a look at it and uh, and kind of revisit it. You know what I'd like to promote is is really I want um, your your viewers and listeners to to really connect with their local community mediation center. You mentioned. Nystra, um, which I'm on the board of, and I also have the great pleasure of being on the board of NAFCOM, which is the National Association for Community Mediation. Um, you know, as people think about how to serve their communities or how to funnel their charitable giving, our the field of community mediation, uh, you know, we are 400 centers strong across the country, more than 20,000 volunteers doing just amazing, amazing work building peace in our communities. So as you look for a place to, to support, whether through your sweat equity, your volunteerism, your skill building, um, or your wallet, look to community mediation. So, so you know, what I'd like to plug is go to nafcm.org, N-A-F-C-M.org. Um, there's a clickable, clickable map where you can find your local community mediation center and one way or another, get involved in this field. Mediators are are real, real heroes, I think. And those who are serving their community, um, you know, uh, I, I think really deserve a greater place in our, our pantheon of, of volunteers and, and, and heroes. So that's that's what I would like to promote. Excellent. Well, thank you once again, um, Brad Heckman blogger, CEO of the New York Peace Institute, um, today on Earbud U, episode number three. Um, we would like to say, you know, please follow us um, on Twitter, at Earbud underscore U. Um, you can also connect with us on our website, www.earbudu.com. Um, in addition, you can take a look at our blog. We've got the Human Services Consulting and Training blog, HSCT Communication blog, um, at hsconsultingandtrain.blogspot.com. We've also got our website website, hsconsultingandtrain.wix.com slash hsct. I know that seems like a lot. Don't worry. The links will be below the, uh, the, links will be below the podcast. Um, as far as kind of, you know, what we've got to promote here on Earbud U, get your knowledge on through your earbuds. We're going to continue to bring you some of the best and most interesting and engaging conversations we possibly can with people who are in a wide range of different areas because there's conflict everywhere. It's not just in a CDRC. It's not just in your family. And it's not just at your workplace. It's everywhere. And there are all kinds of creative ways to engage with it and to deal with it and to address it both in your life um, and we would hope in ours. So we're going to bring that to you every single chance we can get in every single episode of Earbud U. Thank you once again to Brad. Thank you. And we are out. Right, thanks so much.
Thank you.